What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We have uh, a lot to discuss today, and we have a special guest who is joining us, who we will speak to and introduce in a moment. Uh, as everybody knows, we had the uh, shocking news just, just a couple days ago of the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and that is a whole big story, very sad story, entirely on its own, uh, given the, the history and the future of the court and Ginsburg's role in uh, recent decades of American uh, legal history um, on, 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 on many different fronts. Obviously, it kind of gets subsumed into the drama of the national election coming up in about 45 days and also the kind of the, the broader crisis of, of democracy that we are currently living through um, and it gets uh, you know kind of uh, jammed right into everything that is at stake right now and there's a funny sort of thing and I, I, I think probably many people have felt this it feels sort of uh, it feels sort of bad. It feels sort of, uh, you know, uh, shortchanging her historical legacy to condense it down to what's Trump going to try to get away with and all, all this kind of stuff, this immediacy of this national moment. I, I take some grace from the fact that she clearly ended her life very intentionally wanting the conversation to be about the future of that seat and the future of the Supreme Court. Uh, she was she clearly made an effort, even uh, facing the end of her life, to put out this statement where she said, I want the next president to choose my successor. So uh, a lot to discuss there. Before we uh, get to that, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. The most important election in our nation's history is right around the corner, and we need to be alert, energized, and fueled to get out the vote. To help keep you caffeinated for the fight of our lifetime, Grady's Cold Brew is offering 25% off site-wide from now until Election Day, all fans of the Josh Marshall Podcast and Grady's Cold Brew are eligible for the deal with no limits. Order now and get Grady's famous New Orleans-style coffee delivered straight to your door and send a batch to your local campaign headquarters. Grady's can be poured hot or cold and is available in regular or decaf. Ready to give it a squirrel? Get 20% off. Uh, at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. I, w I was going to, uh, you know, our our guest I, Grady's is 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 based on the Bronx. I don't know exactly what district they're they're uh, 
they're uh, based in, but we can. So, David, what do we what do we got on the show? Well, yeah, (laughs) my segue will become the the relevance of my segue will become (laughs) obvious in a moment. Yeah. Well, joining us is Richie Torres. Um, Thanks for having. Thanks for joining us today. How are you? It's an honor to be here. And if I if I drank beer, I would drink it from the rocks. So I. (laughs) There we go. There we go. Yeah. Well, thankfully, cold brew is the cold brew is non-alcoholic. But um. So tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of your background in, in politics, Richie, and, um, and I know you and Josh met kind of recently, right? Tell us, just tell us a little bit about yourself before we, before we get going. Sure. So, you know, I'm a son of the Bronx, uh, born battle-scarred in the Bronx, uh, you know, was raised by a single mother who had to raise three children on minimum wage, uh, which in the 1990s was $4.25 an hour. And I grew up in public housing, um, living in conditions of mold and mildew, leaks and lead uh, without reliable heat and hot water. You know, public housing in New York City, which is the central cause of my life, has been so savagely defunded that it has $40 billion worth of capital needs. Um, And my life is something of a metaphor because I grew up right across the street in a public housing development right across the street from Trump Golf Course. So as I saw the conditions in my own home get worse, uh, the government had invested more than $100 million in a golf course with Donald Trump. And that experience is what inspired me to become a housing organizer. And then eventually I took the leap of faith and ran for public office. I was 24, poor, had no ties to the dynasties of Bronx politics, the party machine. But I was young and energetic, and I knocked on thousands of doors. I went into people's homes. I heard their stories. And I won my first campaign on the strength of door-to-door, face-to-face campaigning. Um, But seven years before then, I was at the lowest point in my life. I had dropped out of college. I was abusing substances. You know, I felt as if the world around me had collapsed. There were moments when I even thought of taking my own life. And then seven years later, I became the youngest elected official in the largest city in America. And now I'm about to become a United States congressman. So I love to say that my story is the story of the Bronx. It's a story of struggle, but also one of overcoming. It, it is, it, it, you know, it's um, uh, New York, and we're kind of seeing this play out in the last couple cycles. As you say, there are these dynasties, right? And these, these, these machines, I mean, we kind of think about, you know, Tammany Hall, and that's kind of, you know, the old days before the reform clubs and all that kind of stuff. But uh, we... You know, there. I mean, tell us a little bit about the. the you are. Um, we don't want to totally take things for granted, but let's say you're a very, very strong favorite uh, um, in 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 this election. Um, but there was a very heated race for the nomination. Tell us. Tell us about who was who are who you were up against, and you know, getting to the issue of 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 uh, entrenched power um, in, in, in New York City. Yeah, so I, I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would run in a, in a fiercely contested congressional primary that unfolded in the midst of an infectious disease outbreak. Uh, there were 12 candidates, uh, including five elected officials. You had a former speaker of the New York City Council. You had a DNC vice chair. You had a council member from Northern Manhattan you had a DSA candidate endorsed by Bernie Sanders and AOC. Uh, but the front runner, ironically, was a man by the name of Ruben Diaz Sr. So even though the South Bronx is said to be the most Democratic district in America, voting for Barack Obama in 2012 by 96%, there was a real risk 
that the worst homophobe in New York state politics would win the bluest seat in America. And, you know, the conventional wisdom held that he was well positioned to win because he's been a larger than life political figure longer than I've been alive. <laughs> and, and that as a gay man, you know, I had no real chance of winning in the South Bronx because the median voter is a church going Latino or African-American woman. And I had no hope for connecting to those voters. And the conventional wisdom was wrong. And on the strength of a, a grassroots campaign, I won more than a third of the vote in an 11-person race. Am I remembering right that that during the state legislative uh, battle over over same-sex marriage, and I'm losing track of the exact years, I think it was 2011 in New York? Do I have the year right? Am I remembering? Okay. 2011, that he was actually in the sort of the, 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 you know, the final voting, wasn't he kind of holding, you know, kind of the holdout, like a very uh, prominent and, and uh, uh, I, re I remember that very, very uh, vividly. What is the, what, just, just briefly, why maybe was is premature, but uh, why was he such a force in, 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 Bronx politics, especially because, as as you say, in many, you know, a very as as Democrats go, a pretty Trump-like Democrat. I oh, know he, Ruben Diaz Senior, is the Donald Trump of New York City politics. In the 1990s, he said the Gay Olympics would lead to the spread of AIDS. In 2009, he partnered with Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council to hold a public rally against marriage equality. In 2011, he was the sole Democrat in the state Senate to vote against marriage equality. A year ago, he said the city council is controlled by a homosexual cabal, uh, to which I jokingly replied, that's the most accurate thing you've ever said as a card-carrying member of the gay mafia. <laughs> um, he's, he's compared abortion to the Holocaust. He has described sexual harassment as a compliment. But, you know, he's been in a position of power, A, because of name recognition. And his son, who is more progressive, is the Bronx borough president. He's the most popular elected official in the Bronx by far. And, you know, Ruben Diaz Sr. has ties to a deep network of churches. And there was never a campaign like mine that held him accountable for aiding and abetting the Republican Party, for exposing him as a Republican masquerading as a Democrat. It's not only Donald Trump. He had a long tradition of endorsing Republicans over Democrats. He supported Giuliani over Dinkins. He supported um, Rob Astorino over Governor Cuomo. And he is... Uh, Trump-like. He is as, every bit as bombastic and buffoonish as Donald Trump himself. I am curious, though, um, you know, the fact that you unseated him in general, you know, odds are stacked against you with what you said about name recognition, everything like that. And then to mount a grassroots campaign, like you alluded to, in the midst of a pandemic, when, you know, a lot of that kind of face-to-face -face action, that's kind of the root of that, is made so much harder. How did you, how'd you circumvent that? Look, he, he ran, uh, he's an old school Bronx politician mm -hmm. who ran a campaign frozen in the 20th century. Uh, you know, we ran a modern 21st century campaign. We exhausted every means of voter contact, communicating with voters through social media, through television. You know, campaigning during COVID became as much about constituent service as it was about conventional voter contact. So we held food distributions, PPE distributions. Uh, when our volunteer phone bank would reach out to voters, we would not, the first question we would ask is not, can Richie Torres count on your vote? We would ask, how can we be helpful? 
and we would follow up on those complaints and concerns to demonstrate our effectiveness to the voters in their moment of greatest crisis. Uh, and then there are larger forces at work. I think there has been a greater tolerance for LGBTQ people, even in places like the Bronx. And this became a change election, right? It unfolded against the backdrop of COVID-19 and mass demonstrations surrounding the, the murder of George Floyd. And I emerged as a change candidate. It became a, a struggle between good and evil, especially in the final weeks of the campaign. Yeah. And the triumph of an openly LGBTQ elected official in a place like the South Bronx over the worst homophobic New York state politics is a testament to how far we've come as a society. I, I we I've I've kind of pulled us off of David's <laughs> David's David's roadmap. So, but but uh, before I let us go back on the roadmap, when in in your first race, when you talked about you know as you said, there's a lot of there's uh, there there's uh, I guess there's not one Bronx Democratic machine. There's probably a f- you know a few different ones in 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 different uh, parts of the bureau borough. Um, how did how do you run when you say you were 24 when you in your first race how do you do that i mean you know we can talk about you know knocking on doors and stuff but you know you need a certain amount of money to to run a campaign and you need certain certain levels of stakeholder buy in how do how do you do that how did you do that um i think well one door knocking is the most powerful form of voter contact uh obviously the higher the level of the office, the less effective door knocking yeah. becomes because the electorate yeah. becomes yeah. too large. But take my, my council district, there are about 160,000 residents, about 60,000 are registered dens, but only 6,000 vote. You know, I can knock on 6,000 doors right. that's a, over that's, the course yeah. of a yeah. year, and there is no substitute for face-to-face voter contact. I remember voters telling me in the 40 years I've been living in the South Bronx, I've never had a public official or candidate for public office knock on my door. Like there are people who voted for me in my congressional race because I knocked on their door right, eight right. years ago. Like that's right, how powerful right, right. It, it means the world to people. Uh, you know, there's no, for me, constituent service and canvassing door to door campaigning mm-hmm. are the most effective. Second, what distinguishes New York City from New York State and, and, and U.S. politics, federal politics, is we have a, a small donor system, right. public matching funds. So, yep. you know, if you contribute at the time back in 2013, if you contributed $100, the city would give me $600 and it would be worth $700. And so you could win a city council race on the strength of small donor, small donations and door to door campaigning. Right. Just like leveraging that to get that. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, David, I've totally thrown, I've totally trashed your plan. So let's, let's, yeah, let's, let's talk some national news. That's all good. So Kate, I wanted to turn to you. You've been on Capitol Hill a bit this week, probably the first time in a while amid the, you know, speaking of the COVID pandemic, doing reporting on kind of the fight to fill Ginsburg's seat and kind of how Republicans are starting to message their efforts around that. Obviously, over the last couple of days, we've seen Mitch McConnell line up basically all the votes he needs in order to move on a, a nominee. But you and our colleague Tierney Sneed had an interesting piece yesterday, kind of looking at Republicans kind of long, I don't know, long pet issue of demolishing Obamacare and how the fact that John Roberts 
you know, was the kind of has become the moderate swing vote when Ginsburg was a part of the court, gave them an out sort of in, you know, they could message all they wanted that Obamacare sucks and we should get rid of it, but they didn't really have to come up with a plan to replace it or even really face the prospects of the court gutting it because Roberts, you know, could potentially be there to save it as he's done a couple times. But now that Ginsburg is gone, that that situation has changed. So tell us kind of about your reporting what you heard yesterday, um, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, on the ACA piece, you know, it's just something that the Republicans really didn't want to talk about. You know, like I, you know, Tierney and I both were blown off, you know, quite a bit um, and had a lot of conversations where the senators just kind of tried to like reroute the conversation or say that, um, the idea of the ACA being under threat is very speculative or that, you know, you're jumping too many steps ahead. And kind of the core of that is what you said is completely right, David, that Republicans have made their bread and butter railing against Obamacare and how bad it is for years at this point. But in the meantime, have failed to come up with any kind of alternative barring, you know, Trump's secret health care plan that I think now we're being promised will be unveiled in two weeks. So I'm sure he's single-handedly figured out how to solve that problem. But so, yeah, they're kind of between a rock and a hard place right now. And honestly, I think most of them are probably secretly hoping that the conservative justices bail out the ACA, that they are not going to have to deal with the repercussions of having millions of people either, you know, ineligible for health care completely or seeing their premium skyrocket. Um, and just you, it became really clear what a dearth of backup plans there are. You know, we had Barrasso tell, was telling me how pointing me towards legislation that he introduced in 2008 to protect people with pre-existing conditions that never got further than an introduction on the floor because it was revealed to not really protect people with pre-existing conditions at all. And, you know, barring that, they, I just heard a lot, you know, Trump is the number one person about reforming this industry, but nothing solid at all. Um, Mike Braun from Indiana kind of was the most candid about this. He said, you know, I've been saying for a while, if we don't come up with a healthcare plan, if we don't come up with anything but the answer no, you know, Republicans are going to be out on the curb anyway. And that is a reality that they're facing. Um, because if if Roberts can't reliably be the one to bail out the ACA, you know, you got to hope that the cons- the other conservative justices um, I guess, find a way to get to know on it. And I think the the Republican senators are hoping for that as well, um, which is why I do think it's a it's pretty smart of Biden and the Democrats to be trying to make that their messaging right now, um, just because the other points of like the Republicans being hypocritical are they're just they don't care. You know, they're they're extremely unapologetic about it. Um, and I know that makes Democrats really angry, but I don't know. To some degree, I just I don't know how strong that argument is with people who see politics as a fundamentally cynical game who feel like, well, what's to stop Democrats from doing this as well? Um, So that's kind of the dynamics going on. They want to keep rerouting the conversation back to, um, you know, it's our constitutional right to uh, judge this nominee and things like that. And just healthcare is not something they want to talk about because it really they just they really don't have a lot of options, barring the hope that the Supreme Court um, overturns this challenge to the ACA. Right. I'm curious if any of you have a sense of this, but, you know, with the coronavirus pandemic still raging with a number of people, I guess we call them long haulers, right? People who have kind of ex- extended 
bouts of COVID-19 and complications from that. You know, if Republicans got pre-existing conditions, protections, I mean, does COVID-19 become a pre-existing condition then that, uh, you know, the law would no longer, you know, protect you against Josh or Richie or Kate? I don't know. Any of you have a sense of that? I mean, isn't isn't there uh, is, isn't there big out that this is going to happen after the election? And there's a decent chance that, um, you know, they will, uh, you know, they'll be out of power. They may lose the presidency, lose the Senate. So they're out of power. And so when everybody's complaining, they can kind of just say, well, you know, <laughs> we're not incumbent. So, who, you know, you guys deal with it. I mean, I, 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 I would think the, the, you know, the one potential saving grace that the Democrats have is that they may be in a position to just pass a new version of the ACA that is substantively the same, but avoids these, you know, basically frivolous and and insubstantial uh, challenges that it's been hung up on. And I certainly think, and I'm curious, Richie, what you think of this, even though obviously it's the Senate, not the House, but still there's a there's a broader strategic question of what Democrats do when they when they get power in Washington. Um, I certainly hope and assume they will not get hung up on like any 60 vote nonsense for this. I mean, that's that's one of the big reasons we ended up with with the sort of the imperfect version of the ACA that we have, because they, you know, they dicked around for for uh, a year and a half, a year and a half, basically, you know, trying to get Republicans to 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 come on board. Richie, I mean, is there dis- is is discussion of this like kind of like doing a not even sure you'd call it a a, an ACA overhaul it's basically just kind of you know getting you know putting it back in place with maybe some technical differences differences to get around these 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 court challenges what's what's your is there is that discussion happening I mean and again I understand it's the house not the senate but you know big picture the the party is accountable to the public you know, my impression is views vary. You know, some people would rather build on the foundation laid by the ACA. Others prefer a public option. Others want to go as bold as Medicare for all. Others have mm-hmm. even said VA for all. Right. Um, you know, for me, the focus has to be has to be on building democratic power. Like we have been, as far as I'm concerned, we're governed by minority rule. Right. We're governed by a Republican president who lost the popular vote. A Republican Senate majority that represents 15 million fewer people than the so-called Democratic minority in the Senate. And even if Biden wins, even if we have Democratic majorities in both chambers of Congress, we are in danger of being governed by a right-wing Supreme Court that is willing and eager to strike down the Democratic choices of a Democratic president and Democratic majorities in the House and in, in, in the Senate. So it just seems, you know, naive to think that we can pursue a bold progressive agenda without thinking deeply about the levers of power. And for me, building democratic power means abolishing the filibuster, expanding the Supreme Court, legislating statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico, which would likely yield new four new democratic senators. You know, the. The, Machiavelli, the, the Machiavellianism and malevolence of Mitch McConnell demonstrates what we've known all along, that Republicans care more about pursuing power 
than principle. And we as Democrats need to be every bit as ruthless and relentless in building democratic power as the Republicans have been in building Republican power. Unilateral disarmament is a loser's game. You know, how can we be expected to be institutionalists when Republicans have no regard for institutional norms? Yeah, no, I uh, preach into the choir. I mean, I, I uh, you know, we shouldn't have to think about, well, how can we craft our progressive policies to appease a, a conservative Supreme Court? Like, we, we should not be governed by the activism of an oligarchy on the court. Yeah, no. So it, do, do you do, do I mean, I know you're 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 not uh, 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 down there yet, but I, I'm really curious. I mean, I've been I've been surprised. I mean, I've at least heard, um, you know, from from people around Chuck Schumer that, you know, he's he considers it very much an option to, you know, to add seats to the court, which, you know, g- given the, which, you know, I'm kind of pleasantly surprised, right? Because the, 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 that whole institution tends to be very hidebound. Um, on the other hand, you've got Dianne Feinstein making this comment a couple days ago saying, well, you know, I like the filibuster. It's not, it's not as, you know, it's not used as much as it used to be. And I'm sort of like, what? Like, what are we talking about here? Um, you know, no, no, adding people to the court. Do you think a, uh, the, the new people in place in, in, in the democratic party in, in DC, do you think there is going to be, uh, are, are they going to be able to pull these, you know, and when I say older, I don't mean necessarily chronologically older people, but you know, the kind of the old guard to say, look, we can't, you know, it, it's, we're not living in the 1970s anymore. We, we have to, we are, we are, you know, uh, uh, we are, we have to, as you said, be building democratic power, not just be, not just be, uh, you know, thinking in legislative terms, but how to, how do we reshape the playing field? Do you think that's going to happen? Do you have confidence that that's going to happen? You know, I'm cautiously optimistic. I do believe that Mitch McConnell's Machiavellianism has had a radicalizing effect on the party. Uh, and that's why you're sensing openness from democratic leadership to something as seemingly radical as Supreme court expansion. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, the new class of congressional leaders are what I call good troublemakers are going to be disruptors. We're not there to maintain the status quo. We're there to effectuate uh, a progressive agenda. You know, if we have, Biden in the White House, and if we have Democratic majorities in both the Senate and the House, we will have the makings of an FDR moment. We will have a once in a century opportunity to reinvest in America on the scale of a new deal, to create the next generation of green jobs, to fight catastrophic climate change, to build a comprehensive social safety net, to begin to address the root causes of systemic racism, to enable local and state governments and the federal government to recover from COVID-19. Not every class has the benefit of an FDR moment, but we might, and we have to make the most of that moment. And I don't think my class is going to stand by idly and allow the Supreme Court to derail our FDR moment. It's unimaginable to me. And if we do, then shame on us. Like if, if, if we have majorities in the presidency and in the, in the, in Congress, and we fail 
to deliver a bold agenda in this historic moment, in this FDR moment, then the fault is ours. Then shame on us. I, I, I remember back, you know, look, it, 12 years ago, a lot of us thought we were in one of those moments. You know, in, in 2008, 2009, uh, there were big majorities. I mean, you know, uh, Republicans kind of uh, kept Al, Frank, Al Franken kind of hanging, you know, kept him out of the Senate for about six. But basically, a 60-seat majority, a big Senate majority, a big House majority. Uh, there was lots of excitement about Barack Obama. You, you know, you didn't have COVID-19, but you were coming off of a big economic crisis and, you know, two years later, uh, Republicans sweep back into power, blah, blah, all this kind of stuff. I mean, I, I guess, I, I, obviously, it's a different moment. I guess your assumption is that that uh, the last 10 years have, have taught, or last dozen years, have taught Democrats some pretty hard lessons about what you have to do when you're given that opportunity? Yes, and post-traumatic stress from the election of Donald Trump. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, since Donald Trump, we've seen a progressive renaissance that has reset the terms of American politics. Remember, during the Affordable Care Act, the radical left wing position was the public option. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Today, the public option is the moderate position. It is the position of the Democratic nominee for president. Uh, so so that speaks to the leftward shift in the zeitgeist, not only within the Democratic Party, but nationally. Right. I want to, to my colleagues, I don't, I don't want to, you know, if you have questions, definitely, uh, uh, definitely jump in. I mean, is there, tell us, how do you, you know, there, there's the, there's the class that's going to come in next year. There's also the 2018 class that has a lot of young progressives that many of whom, you know, people think about AOC, but there's a lot of other uh, uh, people who are, you know, came in in the same class, generationally similar, um, not all in the same place ideologically exactly, but a lot of a lot of new people. Um, where do you where do you position yourself in that kind of new firmament of those? You know, the, the last um, this new generation of people who Democrats who have been elected during the Trump era. Um, they're often kind of painted with one brush, you know, kind of, again, everything is, is AOC and then the sort of Pelosi, but there's a lot of people there. Yeah. Tell us the different... Yeah, I, th I think it's important to know yeah. that, you know, progressivism among the new millennials entering Congress, um, it's not a monolith. There are varieties. Um, you know, some people are members of the squad. Uh, some people like me are going to be members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Um, but I think the common thread beyond youth is a disruptive uh, ethos that we're willing to, you know, challenge the status quo. We're willing to agitate for a much bolder progressive agenda than the party has done historically, right? The, the Democratic Party of the 1990s, you know, was largely... Um, a moderate alternative to Reaganism. I think what we're hoping to do is effectuate a boldly progressive, that we should be every bit as boldly progressive as the Republican Party is boldly conservative. Although I would argue that the governing ideology of Republicans is no longer conservatism, it's Trumpism. It is a cult of personality 
around Donald Trump himself. Kate, I had a question for you just um, on the on the topic of adding seats to the court. I think your reporting so far this week is probably focused mostly on Republicans since Republican Senate will be the one to um, to confirm a potential justice. But have you picked up any signals as far as, I don't know, Senate Democrats or anyone kind of on in any Democratic lawmakers being open to the idea of adding seats? I think Biden himself has been kind of circumspect on that topic so far, right? And hasn't really staked out his position. But have you picked up any signals on that front? Yeah, I think um, what Josh said earlier about kind of the we're keeping our options open is the attitude of most Democrats. And I think to some degree that is political calculus because it's a delicate moment right now. And I think Democrats are wary to give Republicans a rallying point. The fact that if they could rush this nominee through pre-election takes a big impetus off the table for Republican voters to vote. Because, you know, McConnell has said it before, people don't come to the polls to thank you. So, and right now it kind of seems like all all speed ahead on getting this, uh, this new nominee through before election day. So if that's the case, I think Democrats are concerned that Republicans are going to rally around the, you know, if Democrats are elected, they're going to court, they're going to pack the courts, they're going to pack the Senate, we'll never have Republican rule again, even though I do, I mean, I think those things sound like the best remedy to kind of counter the overrepresentation of um, you know, rural states in in the Senate and the, the theft of Merrick Garland's seat and everything like that. But I think right now, Democrats are trying to use the idea of a Republican nominee getting on the court for everything it's worth. You know, the idea being that we saw this huge influx of donations on Act Blue after RBG died. They, I think they really want to harness that anger and that fear and drive turnout as much as possible. And then if all goes according to that plan, Biden takes the White House, Democrats retake the Senate. If I, if I had a wager from what it's felt like being down there, I think we're going to see the court be expanded. Um, you know, statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico, um, just because I think I think uh, Democratic voters are going to be so attentive and holding the lawmaker so accountable and be so angry and feel very, uh, you know, kind of that McConnell has been running roughshod over these institutions for years um, and Democrats have never really countered with the same amount of firepower. So there's definitely a bit of I think for Democrats, a reason to lean into the direness of the moment right now that is, I think, politically advantageous. Um, but, you know, we'll see because we're also getting into the debates and we're getting into a period where it's going to be really hard for Biden to skirt if he's OK with packing the court or not, if he's OK with statehood or not. Um, so we'll see how long they can keep up that attitude. But I think being in that um, ambiguous space kind of driving up the the passion of uh, Democratic voters they think is kind of in their favor right now. Yeah. Richie, I'm curious if you've heard any anything similar to what Kate's describing just from voters in, in the Bronx or other, you know, people you've spoken to. It's correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like in 2016, right, we had a, almost a full year after Scalia died until the election and Republicans, you know, who maybe didn't love Trump, but swallowed hard because they knew that he would, you know, 
pack, you know, he, he would pack the courts, both Supreme Court and at the federal level with nominees of their liking. You know, it didn't seem like maybe the Supreme Court was as front and center of an issue for the left in 2016. But do you feel like that's changing this year? Do you think with the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, people are just more aware of what's at stake on the court and, I don't know, having that impact their their decision when they're casting a ballot at all? Look, the, the, the most activist Democrats uh, care deeply about the court and support uh, court expansion, as, as do I. You know, does, does a rank-and-file Democrat in the Bronx think about the Supreme Court? The honest answer is no. But the rank-and-file Democrat cares about access to health care, cares about access to affordable housing. And if a right-wing Supreme Court undercuts my ability, the ability of the Congress to deliver for my constituents, that is relevant to them. Um, you know, so even if my constituents are not thinking directly about the Supreme Court, they think deeply about my ability to deliver for them. Uh, and that's why, for me, the Supreme Court has to be the supreme priority of both the Democratic Party and the progressive movement. You know, it's 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 funny. I mean, I think we're a lot of us who, who are a little older are used to thinking about the importance of the Supreme Court uh, mostly about protecting a series of rights for different groups of people, voting rights, um, particularly but not exclusively for African-American voters, reproductive rights for women, you know, and, and there are many others, but these tend to be, uh, again, individual rights protecting uh, certain classes of, of, of citizens from laws that diminish their rights. We, it is only in, in the last several decades, only much more recently, where the court has basically made clear, look, you pass a, a health care law, we're just going to find some kind of like, you know, pretty facially nonsensical uh, technical flaw and just toss it out. And that that is a big difference. That is not a matter of, of I mean, obviously, v- voting rights is is existential in a democracy. If you don't have the right to vote, you don't have a democracy. Re- yeah, exactly, exactly. Ex- exactly, exactly. So it's not that these things are more or less important, but it's like a category difference of like, you know, kind of like, are we going to, you know, I, I, have, no, I have no doubt that if there were some federal analog to, you know, uh, uh, legislation about public housing or fair housing, any of these things, there's going to be, you know, some law professor down in Texas or, you know, you know, the kind of because that's where a lot of them have come come out of uh, in the in the ACA era coming up with, again, some technical issue like, nope, that's unconstitutional. Sorry. Well, nothing is to prevent the court from deciding that. You know, rent regulation and zoning laws are an unconstitutional infringement of property rights. So we'll strike it down nationally. Yeah. I yeah. mean, if if we allow the Republicans to capture the Supreme Court, uh, we're opening the floodgates. Yeah. And that and that and, and for our listeners, that was, uh, you know, a lot of the early 20th century. That was the name of the game. You had a conservative. Exactly. You had a conservative Supreme Court that basically said that, you know, it. it there's more details, but basically progressive legislation on political economy is off limits. 
because of an, of an expansive definition of the right of uh, contract and stuff like that. And that looks like what we're uh, going going back to. And there's actually, what was it just in the last few days, Richie, maybe you saw this, there was, what was it, some uh, uh, some big judge, maybe it was Barrett or some, someone basically saying, hey, Lochner's still good. Like some people say, it's not, it's not, it's it's no longer standing law, but actually, it's still it's still solid. And notice there's been a shift in the in judicial conservatism. Like historically, you know, whether it was sincere or not, you can debate it. But historically, conservatives saw themselves as champions of judicial restraint. Um, now, conservatism embraces right wing judicial activism, not on legal questions, but on pure political policy questions. And, you know, that to me is, you know, the founding father said that the judicial branch is the least dangerous branch. It's going to become the, more, the, most, the most dangerous uh, if we turn a blind eye to Mitch McConnell's power games. Well, and, awesome. and Republicans have... Okay. Go ahead, go ahead. No, Republicans realize, you know, with the changing complexion of America, Republicans are no longer able to win a majority of the American people. And so their logic is if we cannot win at the ballot box, then we're going to win at the court. Mm-hmm. And that is a profound rejection of the very judicial restraint that conservatism has claimed to champion for more than half a century. Well, and I think along those same lines, the big fear right now with why would McConnell be pushing through this nominee so quickly if it stands to possibly be electorally bad for some of his vulnerable members is the idea that what is the other reason to push it through before election day but to have a super conservative court in place for any bush gore 2000 election questions that concern you know that come up in these kind of doomsday scenarios where it gets tossed all the way to the supreme court um so that that activism you speak to it seems very to be looming on the horizon and i add something to you know the, the conservative narrative holds that the politicizing of the court began with robert Bork, which i disagree with i think robert Bork was so extreme that the senate had every right to reject him um but i, I would argue the politicizing of the court began with uh bush v gore like the, the moment the court decided the outcome of a presidential election it became little more than an extension of politics and I worry that we can see a repeated history. Um, there's, there's, it's, it's funny. There, there is something, and this, this is one of the things that both scares me and, in a paradoxical way, gives me a certain amount of confidence in, in, in the political future. That if you look at a lot of the stuff <clears throat> that the Republican Party has focused on, especially in the last twenty years you know, since in many ways, since Bush v. Gore, I mean, we remember there was this technical issue of how you're going to resolve the the contest in Florida, which was a Bush v. Gore, you know, uh, was was about. But you also had the, the, the broader issue that it was the first time in a century or so a little, I think a little more than a century, that the guy who won didn't get the most votes. <laughs> and that is and that that's like standard now, like, like everybody's really worried that Donald Trump's going to win re-election, you know, by hook or by crook. No one thinks he's going to win the popular vote. I mean, no one thinks he's going to win the popular vote. He will definitely get fewer votes. It's just a question of whether he can kind of, you know, uh, uh, thread the needle in, in, in the electoral college. But there's a lot of things about the Republican policy agenda and even more the Republican 
sort of government architecture agenda, which if you look at the premise is, the premise is the future is not on our side. We are not going to win more. We are not going to get better at winning majority vote contests. We're going to get worse at it. Ergo, we need to start limiting the people who can vote. We need to start locking in electoral power now because we're going to lose it over time. So, you know, you lock in a lot now. Maybe we'll still be kind of, you know, cruising on our on our election wins from, you know, the early 21st century in 2040 or 2050. So there is there is a lot about the contemporary Republican Party. And I think this is an accurate perception that is, again, the future's not on our side. Our group is getting smaller um, and we need to lock in all the power that we that we can now because we're going to lose it over time. Uh, and again, there's just when you think about it, we almost take that for granted in a way. I mean, if you think you're killing it, you don't prevent people from voting. You want more people to vote. That's obvious, right? If you're kind of if you're trying to limit people from 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 voting that is a statement of deep pessimism about your political future and normally if you're losing elections you know you moderate yourself to appeal broadly to the electorate but rather than moderate itself to become a viable political party in america uh, the republican party would much rather cling on to minority rule by any means necessary pursue a radical agenda by any means necessary. Like the true radical party in America is not the Democratic Party. It's the Republican Party um, for the reasons that you laid out compellingly. I thought maybe we could spend just the last maybe 10 or so minutes that we have talking about one of our favorite topics on the podcast, which is New York City. Uh, I'm recording here from Brooklyn. Kate is based in D.C. now, but was a New Yorker in, in, I guess, until like six months ago, basically, right? Um, Basically, like the week or two before the lockdown, right? When you moved to D.C.? You missed all the well. I was gonna, I was gonna say you missed all the fun, but there's too many tears and 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 loss to, yeah. to even joke about it. Yeah. But but you missed what we experienced. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so you know, there's been a lot of debate, Richie, about is New York City over? Is the city kind of dead and done? And people are all leaving. And you know, we've seen Trump and his Attorney General Bill Barr go after the city, calling it an anarchist jurisdiction. You know, it is very scary. People are having picnics in the park and streets are closed down and people are enjoying themselves and eating, eating outside at restaurants. It's all, all very scary stuff, but, um, that's a joke in case anyone (laughs) on the, any listeners couldn't get the sarcasm, but just what's your take on the resiliency of the city and, and kind of the future that it might hold, you know, as we eventually come out on the other side of the pandemic? Look, I, I love New York. Um, it's a great city with great people. So ultimately I am optimistic, but there are causes for concern. Uh, you know, the decline of New York city is not a inevitability. It's a choice largely driven by the federal government. You know, the local and state government is teetering on the verge of collapse. The MTA, the public transit system, which is the lifeblood of the city is teetering on the verge of collapse. Uh, it has a $10 billion deficit, which is one third of the MTA's complete budget over the course of a two year period. Um, and if we lose the MTA, then the city will become a shadow of its former self. You know, um, work from home 
does have interesting implications for New York City. Um, you know, the whole logic of lower Manhattan and the central business district depends on people physically coming to work and supporting local businesses, creating foot traffic, creating vibrancy. You know, the question I would have is what, what place will telecommuting have in a post-COVID world? You know, is it going to continue to endure in a post-COVID world in some substantial form? And if it does, uh, it could have profound implications for the economy of New York City. Um, you know, on the issue of crime, there have been somewhere in the range of 300 murders. You know, when I was two in 1990, there were more than 2,000 murders. So the, mur- the number of murders remains at historic lows. But we have seen a 40% spike in the span of a single year, which is historically um, unprecedented. So is New York City as bad as the apocalyptic narrative would lead you to believe? No, but, but there are genu- genuine causes for concern. And Rich, Richie, is that, that 40%, is that murders or is that crime, more, more, crime no, rate so, more generally? So there are only, as far as I can tell, there are two categories of crime that have seen a surge. Shootings and murders. Right? Everything else seems to be under control. But we've seen the, the number of shooting victims and incidents have, has all but doubled. Uh, and I would argue part of that is driven by a slowdown. And, you know, and the head of the Sergeant Benevolent Association referred to me as a first class four. We're pointing out that there might be a slowdown. Um, and, but, but murders has risen by 40%, which, and I want to be honest, is historically unprecedented. Yeah. And I, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because, you know, we, I think we've all seen, you know, a lot of them show up in like the New York post and stuff, the, these, you know, kind of testimonials and stuff like, Oh, New York's over. And I, you know, all my friends are moving to Florida. <laughs> and, and when you drill down, you know, most of those are from people who are in, you know, three or four sections of Manhattan, right. Um, that, you know, not uh, certainly all of us know the great bulk of New Yorkers do not have the ability to say, that's it. I'm moving to my my place at Jackson Hole. I'm out of here. Um, the one thing that does worry me, though, is kind of to your point that, you know, we we I mean, at TPM we have particular reason to be to be uh, down on 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 uh, commercial real estate landlords because we're still paying like unbelievable rent for office space we're not using. Um, but I do worry that the tax base of the city, you know, the city is not those people in Midtown and the fancy places downtown and a few parts of the Upper West Side and and, and Upper East Side, but that's a lot of the tax base. Um, and that is, a, that is an issue. That doesn't mean New York's gone, but it doesn't mean that New York's budget may be in bad, bad shape. I mean, I even think, you know, again, just to a point, our offices in New York City are in Chelsea, um, we've, you know, been there for about 10 years. Uh, we have not been in that office since March, uh, you know, for the moment, because of the way that the contracts are going to be construed, the landlords are doing fine from us. We're still paying that, that crazy, uh, you know, New York, Chelsea commercial real estate rent, but there's all the places that all of us went to lunch, you know, went to lunch during the day and stuff like that. Those places are, are, you know, you can do all the outdoor, you know, outdoor seating you want, but those offices are mostly vacant. And that's, that is going to be a 
big impact. And I do worry about the city's fiscal health, not whether the city's going to disappear or whether the city is is really only kind of like, you know, your 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 place in 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 Midtown. But the tax base does really does affect everybody. More than half of the city's budget comes from real estate. And so if real estate crumbles, it's, it's going to do untold harm to the city of New York. And, you know, think about all the assets that make New York City great, entertainment, hospitality, restaurants. All of those industries are in an existential crisis. You know, I represent Arthur Avenue, a little Italy. I, I represent businesses that have endured for 100 years, that have survived the Spanish flu, two world wars, a Great Depression, 9-11, a Great Recession. And, and these businesses are struggling to survive. Um, you know, in a world of COVID without indoor dining, um, every restaurant is an endangered species. So, you know, is, yes, I, I, I enjoy the cottage industry of people from who are, who are screaming the apocalypse from their perch in the Hamptons. <laughs> um, but but setting, setting aside those people, um, there are legitimate concerns about the future of New York City um, but the federal government can be part of the solution. And right now, the message from Donald Trump is dropped dead. And, and that really makes for, for I, think, I think, David, we were talking about this in one of the, uh, maybe one of our editorial conversations, I can't remember. That makes this election huge for New York City. I mean, almost existential. For, I mean, let alone everything about, about immigration policy and, and, and the rule of law that you get a new president, you get a new Senate, and you maybe get the resources to, to allow New York City, as we have understood it, to survive. I mean, that really is kind of on the ballot, isn't it? Is that for me or for? Yeah, for you, Rich. Yeah. I mean, for yeah, anybody, the, the, but yeah. The, 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 yeah. The, for me, the highest priority of the federal government should be to stabilize state and city governments, especially New York City. Uh, the, the, and I would go as far as to say the, the presidential election the, the, the politics in D.C. are going to determine the future of New York City. Um, like, look, I have no love for Mayor de Blasio. Um, I'm, I've been his leading critic in the New York City Council. But the, the principal cause of decline in New York City is not the mismanagement of Bill de Blasio. It's federal disinvestment. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. I think that's hey. all the time we have this week, actually. But um, we appreciate you joining us, Richie. Yeah, Richie, thanks so much. I really, we so really much. appreciate it. Uh, really get a, uh, you know, we had a, a great conversation a few weeks ago. I was eager to uh, follow up on it, and and um, uh, 15, 15, It's the fifteenth district, correct? Just so I have the no, uh, New York, forget. New York fifteen. Right, right, right. Um, and so, uh, look forward to uh, st- staying in touch when you're when you're down in down in DC. Uh, I mean, there's going to be, as you said, it it is an FDR moment. Uh, it's we're in a, we're in a particular kind of crisis in in New York City for all the reasons we've discussed, but the whole country is is in a is in is in multiple overlapping crises and it really is up to all of us whether we are going to be victims of history or makers. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. And, and with crisis comes opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, let me remind our listeners that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee, uh, 25% off on all orders uh, for, for uh, listeners to the Josh Marshall podcast through Election Day. And that is uh, Grady'sColdBrew.com, offer code TPM. David, what else do we got? Anything else to wrap up? Just um, next week, we have the first presidential debate, and we are planning on bringing you a special podcast episode. Um, Kate, I think you're off the hook, but Josh and Tierney and I are, are going to try to get something out the night of. So keep an eye out for that, and um, we'll be back with our regular episode on Wednesday next week. Cool. Thanks much. All right. Later, folks. Bye. Bye. Bye.